Welcome to this February edition of the Cambridge Café Scientifique podcast, sponsored by the Medical Research Council. I'm Mira Senthilingam from thenakedscientist.com. This month, fellow naked scientist Hannah Critchlow delved into the mind to reveal the inner workings of our brains in terms of our nerve cells and their role in our learning, memory and perception of the world around us. And she warmed everyone up, or perhaps I should say lured them in, with a slightly psychedelic illusion of a rotating spiral. So if you could all stare at the centre of this rotating spiral, whilst I tell you a little bit about something that was first documented in 1834 Well, I'm going to be talking about the marvels of the mind. I'm going to start off with a visual illusion called the rotating spiral, first observed in 1834 by a Scottish rambler called Mr Robert Adams, who decided to go outside for an afternoon stroll around the Scottish Highlands, and whilst out, he stumbled across a magnificent waterfall. And... He couldn't help himself but stare at the waterfall and keep his gaze on the downward cascade of of water. He seemed to be quite mesmerised by it. When he eventually managed to drag his eyes away from the the waterfall, this downward cascade of water, his perception of the world had changed. So when he looked away from the waterfall, his world had changed and instead it seemed to be moving upwards. His entire world seemed to be moving upwards. And the biological explanation for that is something that we we can now... Um, get to grips with 170 years later and, and that's um, something that's going on in the back of your brain in a region called the visual cortex. So what is actually going on in the brain and what's the visual cortex responsible for essentially and how is it affecting the way we see the world? The visual information is coming in through the eyes. Uh, it's electrically activating retinal cells at the back of the brain, uh, at the back of the eye, sorry. Um, and then that electrical information is going via the optic chasm to a region at the back of the brain called the visual cortex. And the visual cortex is massive because visual information to us and processing visual information to us seems to be quite an important job for the brain to do. Um, So there's 280 million cells in your visual cortex and some cells are there to detect shape, some cells are there to help detect and process colour and some of your visual cortex cells are there to detect motion and some of those are inward detecting motion cells or they could be outward detecting motion cells. They're um, activated by different types of motion And what was happening to Mr. Robert Adams was that he was overstimulating his downward motion-detecting cells in the visual cortex, and those were um, becoming so hyperactivated that in much the same way that um, after exercise your muscle can get tired, these cells were becoming tired and essentially fatigued, and they adapted to, um, to express at a lower level. And when... Mr. Robert Adams looked away, the world appeared to be moving upwards. So as he looked away from the waterfall, these cells that had become adapted and I guess were being active at a lower level were still active? So they had a heightened level of activity when he was looking at the downward water cascade and when he looked away, they were pretty exhausted, pretty fatigued Um, and so they dropped their levels to an incredibly low, low level and in comparison the upwards detecting motion cells at the back of the brain and the visual cortex had a higher level of activity and so relatively speaking 
the world appeared to be moving upwards. So when looking at something that isn't going downwards, it appeared to be going upwards. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. And this, this type of visual illusion gives, it gives an idea of how we build our, our world based on prior experience and adapt to all of the information that's coming in. So I guess this really helps our brain to adapt easier by using this memory rather than having to treat everything as new information every time. Exactly, and I move on to different types of visual illusions that show how you can sometimes filter out particular types of information rather than being bombarded by all different types of information all the time, Um, how usually you can attend um, and pay attention to new types of information rather than being constantly bombarded with all types of sensory information. So, so I talk about the brain in general and I describe how it's about 1.5 kilograms, which is uh, not a huge amount. You know, it's about the same, same weight as a bag of sugar or the head of a cauliflower. Um, it's about 2% of your total body mass and yet it greedily consumes about 20% of your daily energy quota. Um, so it's, it's quite a hungry, greedy beast, your brain. And most of that activity is being taken up by nerve cells. So nerve cells, are, I describe the structure of nerve cells and how many there are. So there's 100 billion nerve cells in your brain, which is 14 times the world population. So these are great kind of figures to get the audience thinking about, I guess, just how much goes on inside our brain, considering how small it really is. Is this the aim of tonight's talk for you, to get the audience just understanding a bit more about what's going on inside their brain? Yeah, and also to be hopefully in awe of their brains and inspired by their brains and... So I was talking about nerve cells. So nerve cells communicate by electrical activity, which then transfers to chemical activity. And one nerve cell can connect and communicate with up to, well, between 1,000 and 10,000 other nerve cells. And the majority of the connections from one brain um, nerve cell to another nerve cell happens via these very small structures called dendritic spines. Now, dendritic spines are, are minuscule, and they're thought to be linked to um, learning and memory. And they allow uh, information to be processed and to transfer from one nerve cell to another. And, and during the talk, I, I describe how the dendritic spines are so dynamic that you can actually see um, them change shape and form a new connection within 15 minutes. And that this can correlate with learning and memorising a, a new task. For example, um, learning how to find a, a treat in a water maze or a hidden platform in a water maze. So just lastly, Hannah, then, you are, you are aiming to get this message across through the use of illusions and a, a good kind of explanation of the workings of the brain. I'm really trying to get the audience involved in the presentation and start thinking about what's going on in their brain by using illusions as a vehicle. So getting the audience to take part, to do these illusions, to be tricked by them and then to start thinking about their own consciousness and perception and to try and think about their own brains and hopefully to start discussing different aspects of cognitive enhancement, learning and memory and just to to be more interested in it. Hannah Critchlow from The Naked Scientists. Now, when it comes to the brain, it's often the case that the more you learn, the more questions you then have about what you just learned. And this was the case for many in the audience starting with one person who wondered whether this electrical activity that passes through our nerves and causes them to communicate and signal for certain actions in the body resembles the electricity we see flowing through our wires at home. What is electrical activity in the brain? Is it similar to electrical cabling in computers or a house? And could we hook up 
electrical activation to the brain and then what would happen. So what happens is you've got your nerve cell which with the big blob in the middle and then you've got all those branches, those um, kind of like tree arborizations at the top. And then, um, so electrically active nerve cells are connected to a dendritic spine. The dendritic spine then gets chemically activated because the previous nerve cell releases a chemical neurotransmitter which docks on the dendritic spine and those bulbous dendritic spines have got loads of receptors for particular chemicals and so they will be specifically activated by the chemical and those dendritic spines will then cause an electrical activity. They'll convert that chemical signal to an electrical activity, a change of voltage. And that happens by causing the long cylindrical structure called the axon. That's got loads of pores in it, like kind of gates or channels. When the dendritic spine or the neighbouring nerve cell indicates or chemically activates that nerve cell, the pores in that axon open and it causes a rush of ions to come in. The ions are charged in a particular way, and in that way, there's a flow, a passive current from electrical charge. So it's really it's, it's electricity. And then you asked about, um, can we use this electrical activity? We can, and that's something that neuroscientists have been working on. So, for example, um, inserting transcranial stimulation deep into the brain for the treatment of depression has been um, something that's in clinical trials, I believe, at the moment in Oxford, so for depression and for Parkinson's, to stimulate particular types of neurons. And also um, cochlear implants as well. So we now have an understanding of the electrical activity and so we can start using it for clinical benefit. During her talk, Hannah mentioned the presence of dendritic spines that, although present from birth, change dynamically throughout our lives. And one audience member was curious whether they played a role in our addictions. So this is something that neuroscientists are really looking into as well. Um, And they're looking into it in relation to addiction for cocaine. So you see an altered number of dendritic spines in cocaine addiction and in different areas of the brain that are associated with reward and habit. If you smoke nicotine, then you are opening up a particular immediate early gene It's called an immediate early gene because it's kind of an initial priming gene, so to speak, and it causes a cascade of other genes to be activated. And those other genes are usually involved in synaptic, something called synaptic plasticity, which is like the plasticity, the movement, the dynamics of those dendritic spines. So nicotine primes the brain to have a high C-FOS, this um, kind of immediate early gene expression, so that... When you have nicotine and then follow it up with cocaine in rats, they showed that um, they would then have an increased learning and memory and cognition and habit for the cocaine because of nicotine. So that was a study that was published a couple of months ago in Science, and they're going to be looking to find out whether um, similar effects are seen with alcohol and other drugs. And just how do our nerves, and more specifically the dendritic spines, change or adapt during our development. So when you're in early stages of development, when you're a child, when you're an infant, you have a huge number of dendritic spines. Um, uh, You're constantly being stimulated by lots of different things. There's lots of information coming in. It's all all new, it's all novel. Quite a lot of it is. Um, As you then undergo adolescence, you have this thing called synaptic pruning, where some of the unnecessary um, dendritic spines connections get um, taken away and get removed. So those connections that aren't used. And it's thought that that's why schizophrenia um, develops 
shortly after adolescence because that synaptic pruning unmasks some earlier problems with synaptic connectivity and the underlying developmental problem. And that's also why um, adolescence is a particularly vulnerable age for any drugs of abuse because it may interfere with that synaptic pruning method, um, mechanism. There's also other things that are going on during adolescence. So there's increased myelination. So that um, axon in the brain, it's got this fatty, really fatty um, myelin sheath that wraps itself around the axon. And in fact, your brain is made up of 60% um, fat. So it's one of the fattest organs in your body. And there's uh, delayed myelination going on in regions of the brain in the adolescence that are involved in inhibition and other teenage aspects of behaviour. So, yeah, adolescence is a particularly vulnerable time when you have changes in synaptic connectivity. So we know that certain things post-birth can affect your dendritic spine density. So if you're in an enriched environment, so there's lots of things for the rat to play with. Um, it's got lots of friends around it. Yeah, if you take a, a rat or a mouse and you put it in an enriched environment versus a slightly more isolated environment, you can see a difference in dendritic spines. So they may be brothers or sisters and the different environments have affected them. Also jogging, running, physical exercise and jogging in particular is one thing that they've tested just because they can get rats to run on the wheel. That seems to affect dendritic spine density. Hannah Critchlow from The Naked Scientists. Hannah's talk and her use of optical illusions had people chatting after the event, so I spoke to some of them to gather their thoughts. I really enjoyed it. Hannah was able to transmit in a very clear way a complex subject, which is neurosciences, to a very diverse audience. And, and she was also able to engage us in a subject that just kept triggering more and more interesting questions. So it's a fantastic format of seminar and also a fantastic speaker. And what made you come along, I guess? Is this an area you're interested in? No, not at all. I am a scientist as well, a parasitologist, but not a neuroscientist. So this is completely new to me. And she was able to make the language understandable even for me, uh, who is not in the subject. Is there anything in particular that you've learned that you found particularly interesting this evening? Well, one, we should all do sports in order to build as many dendritic spines as possible. Two, we should put our kids in a very enriched environment when they're born. And three, what I want to know from Hannah is how do we keep the connections that are responsible for our memory going for longer terms. I learned a lot. Um, I actually studied neurobiology in college and university, and I hadn't really thought about it in the last 10 years or so. So this was bringing back a lot of old memories. And um, I really liked the, dem the interactive demonstrations that she did. I thought they were really good at uh, demonstrating her point. <laughs> and is there anything in particular you found interesting this evening that you're going to take home and remember? I think the demonstrations were really effective. So actually all of them, I mean, the, the spiral um, as showing the activation of the neurons um, and neurons being fatigued and um, the overcompensation, like the, those things will actually, I think, stick with me. Well, it's the first time I've been to one of these, and I think it's great. I love the whole idea of it being in a bar and everything like that and, and being much more open to the public. And I'm fascinated by the whole dendritic cells. Uh, um, is it a topic that you're particularly interested yeah, I, I'm in? Yeah, I'm into EEG and brain mapping and, and neurofeedback, so it's, it's re very relevant for my, myself. 
And what do you think the use of things like the illusions are quite good for people to get thinking about how their brains work? Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 that's the kind of thing I show kids and, and, and parents all the time. It's, it's, it's a real clear example of how these mechanisms work. And it freaks people out and then it gets you to talk about it and they get to talk about their brain. And, uh, and in fact, sometimes we use it as a way to get into to talk about problems. And if you have difficulties like ADD kids or dyslexics and stuff, and you can talk about the neural mechanisms for this. And it, it helps them to understand it's something that is them but it's not their fault if you see what I mean it's just kind of naturally happening yeah exactly and uh, and and people op- open up and, and talk about things that uh, it creates new conversations basically so as engaging as the brain is for many members of the public a few illusions could help keep people hooked now that's it for this month's podcast but you're welcome to attend the next cafe scientifique for yourself which will take place on Tuesday the 27th of March at Barouche Bar in Cambridge. Details can soon be found online at cambridgecafescientifique.com. The Triple Helix Cambridge Café Scientifique is sponsored by the Medical Research Council and the website is brought to you by rabbitholedesign.co.uk. This podcast was brought to you by me, Mira Senthilingam, from The Naked Scientists. Thank you.